Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Hey, welcome everyone. Welcome to the second segment of our joint venture between the Emory Marketing Analytics Center and the Fanalytics Podcast. So this fall, we are bringing to you uh, content that we would normally do on campus at our annual, or you know, COVID has disrupted that for the last couple of years, at our annual conference. In today's episode, we are joined by Amanda Russell. Amanda is an expert in influence. Uh, we put this together a, a little, little ways back. So, Doug, what do you think of the? What do you think of the topic of influence? Well, first off, I think it's a great person to have on here because who else is an expert in influencer marketing? I feel like nobody's an expert. I know influencers, and I don't think they would say that they're experts in influencer marketing. They just take the purse and post the picture on Instagram and, and get paid. Um, nobody really understands it. I remember I, I had a previous job at an ad agency and we were building out an influencer marketing department for the Home Depot where we were finding potential influencers in that space. And, and this was four years, three or four years ago. So that whole concept to me was completely new at the time. I, I thought, you know, where's the value in this? And now we've seen that influencer marketing has become well, I mean, it's become marketing. And, and so to have someone that's truly uh, come to have a, a clear understanding of it, where the value is, uh, what it means for marketers, I think it's great. And, um, uh, you know, Amanda Russell is incredibly well-spoken and clearly well-studied on, on this topic uh, as she has communicated in her book and in her, her speaking over the years. Yeah, it's... Like I said, Amanda's especially great because she functions both and has functions as an influencer mm -hmm. and now is really devoted to the study of influence. I'll also say this, that this is, uh, this is a real nice topic in that, look, this topic of influence, and I think you, you said it right, that influencer marketing, social media marketing has become marketing. Mm -hmm. So this is a topic that is both useful to anyone working in the marketing space and look even if you're a hardcore analytics person you know understanding the the magic of marketing the magic of influence is an important thing and you know to our other audience folks that are really concerned with consumer passion or fandom well a lot of that's going to be driven by influence as well uh before we turn it over to the conversation just want to add that uh amanda can be found on a weekly podcast as well called the school of influence podcast available at all the major outlets and just to you know in case the the audio goes by too quick her book is called the influencer code and you can find that just about everywhere okay i would like to at this point i would like to welcome our guest amanda russell now this is going to be this is going to be a good one this is going to be a great conversation because amanda is well amanda's a thought leader in the field of the incredibly and increasingly important field of influencer marketing. And so I think this is something that is top of mind for just about every organization out there. So I'm really glad that she can make time to, to join us. Now, Amanda is also, and I'm going to say this on a personal level, I, I can hardly wait to really get to know her because I think she's unique in that I'm going to say she came from the world of influence 
and then started to put her foot into academia, which is really kind of a strange pathway, but I think an incredibly valuable and inter interesting pathway to, to take. Um, she has, in fact, developed programs on influencer marketing that are being conducted at UCLA, Texas, Austin, and my alma mater for my PhD, Northwestern Kellogg as well. She has a book called The Influencer Code, which I think has been quite influential in, in terms of academic programming and the, and the topic. Um, so like I said, I think this is a great guest, a great topic for just about everyone out there. Amanda advises some quite a variety of interesting companies. I see she's got Lamborghini, Cedar Sinai, Lionsgate. So really spanning the gamut from, I don't know, really kind of fancy, sexy automobiles to a hospital system. Um, she also serves on the board and is an advisory council to several global organizations, including the Andy Roddick Foundation and the University of Richmond Business School. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you. For someone that does that self-admits doesn't like to do introductions, that was a very, very good introduction. Uh, th thank you. It was very, very accurate and engaging way. Can I? I'm gonna, I'm gonna hire you to do it for me from now on. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I'm happy to freelance here and there. So I actually skipped over a lot of your, some of your introduction, some of your background, because I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of tell your story as well. And so I'm going to start out with, I don't, I don't know if this is a good question or a terrible question, but how did you get here? I mean, like I said, it's such a unique place that you've ended up. So what did your path look like? Well, I was born, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, so my path, you made a really good point. My, my, my journey to academia is very, very unconventional. Um, that could be, an, that will be another book in itself, I'm sure, uh, in the future. But my, my, my real start came from it, which is going to sound really bizarre, but, you know, I think that most of strategy is developed in hindsight. And I started out, I was an athlete. And um, I was a competitive distance runner. And they, it's a metaphor, running is a metaphor for life for a lot of reasons. Uh, and it sounds really cliche, but you know, having been uh, an athlete my whole life, and that's how I came to the US as well. And it was my career, my identity. And at the very peak of my career, I was in a, like, um, I, I, I was injured. I was had an accident and I was injured before the Olympics. And, you know, you train four years of your life. And it's also, it was also my sponsors, my, my entire identity. And, and I think the realization in hindsight, like of how much identity and what a career means and being passionate about something and being able to work hard, even though it's hard. Um, and then having it all sort of taken away and, and kind of going through an identity crisis where I had to start again. And when you go from being like at the top of your game where people care about you and you get a, there's a lot of attention on you and you, you, you're really good at what you do to nobody cares about you uh, and nobody wants to talk to you and there's nobody and that in, in itself, that's marketing, right? Like that's, that's, that's how you're positioned. It's how it's knowing what it's like to be wanted and have a cult following and to be a brand and then to be the one that nobody cares about. And 
I remember thinking, this is terrible. I, you know, I already feel like a failure on the biggest level, but I need to now develop a career, but I have no work experience. And I didn't want to go home to my small town in Northern Canada uh, to live with my parents after, after all of this. And I remember thinking, well, you know, I have always, if I can't go to the Olympics, uh, which I believed was, you know, the pinnacle of a sort of a, for, for a runner, for an athlete, then what is the pinnacle to me of the corporate world? I'd always had this like big shiny object thinking of New York City. And it was just this magical place that I didn't, you know, growing up, I didn't even know if people could really live there. And there's a reason I tell the story is because I had to, and it sounds disconnected, but I tell every class that I teach first class I tell the story and I'm sure that the, while I'm telling it they're like where's she going with this and but there's a reason um, and I think everyone will see parts of themselves I had to get in order for me to go to New York first of all if you're American you're already like 10 steps ahead of where I where I where I was because I wasn't even legal without my like using my losing my talent visa so I had no work experience I wasn't even legal and I had I didn't know a single person in New York I didn't have any family in the US and yet I wanted to get a job and so I remember people thinking that like you know friends my network saying I was you know how are you going to get a job like you, you don't even have work experience. <laughs> so first, maybe you know, go back. Maybe you know, try to go to Toronto or something and get get you know five, ten years of experience. And then you know, New York is like for the big dogs. So you're not gonna get. They're gonna have to sponsor your visa, and it's like a big deal. And that was my biggest, my my probably my best marketing lesson yet. And it's how I got into influencer marketing, and this is why, because you don't realize the value of a network until you don't have one. You don't realize how important it is. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It's it, it matters what people think, how they think you are smart or how you can help them. And so I realized that I could not compete on experience. So I remember racking my brain thinking, well, what can I compete on? So I, 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 I had a good undergraduate degree at the time, thank God. And I, um, I, I narrowed down a list of like, who are the top consulting firms with headquarters in New York that sponsor visas? And I narrowed down this list down to three and I just put all of my energy into these three firms, into learning everything about them, mainly who their gatekeepers were and who the decision makers were and how to get their attention. But not just their attention, but I needed to also make them, th make them think I was worthwhile. And so they didn't know me and I didn't have experience, but I figured they they knew Nike, who was one of my sponsors, and they they knew the Olympics, and they could probably figure out what it might take to be a competitive distance runner. And there were my two, those were my two influencers. Nike, they knew like they knew and trusted Nike. The Olympics, they knew and trusted an Olympics and what it takes to get there. And I used that. And I sent them each boxes, Nike boxes of shoes, um, my used worn out shoes. And I said, you know, you know, you're right. I don't have work experience in this, in this, with these personal letters, but I have all of the work ethic and the determination and the hustle and the grind and the endless hours that I will give solely to your company if you will hire me. Um, and I ended up getting hired by Millard Brown, which is now Cantar Group. Uh, and um, that was my that was my ticket 
my my initial ticket. And the reason I tell that story is because we think of influencer marketing and we think of like an Instagram star or social media content creator or whatever, like with a bunch of real or fake followers. But influence, you know, and that became a theme throughout. Every I think everyone can look back at their life and realize that there's kind of a theme. That was the initial real theme uh, through my life was how do you get where you want to be and in order to do that you need to figure out who the influential forces are and you have to figure out how to align with them and how do you align with them you have to know what influences them so it's a, it's almost it feels like it's like a paradox right you need to influence you need to figure out who the influencers are and i i hate the term i almost want to drop the r but who those forces are because those forces can be companies in my case they were nike in the olympics they could be Google. If you tell somebody your investor is Elon Musk, all of a sudden they look at you differently. Those are influencers. But you have to, and you have to figure out how do you be influential yourself. And that is a very, um, it, it's 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 almost liberating to know that, and it's frustrating because it's liberating because once you realize that there's nothing you can't achieve, it's frustrating because you're like, well, so how do I go about? how do I go about becoming influential? And, and that's, that is the, the, the smartest, most right answer to that question is it depends. It depends on the context. It depends on the situation. So that's the whole sort of build up to, to how I got into influencer marketing. The beginning. I like it. There's a lot, there's a lot there. And, and as you're having that, as you're going through that story, several things, several things occurred. And I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how I want to, sort of work through these. So I'm just going to start off right at the top. So one of the things that you said that I thought was interesting, and I don't, I don't think it's actually kind of a key to, to where we're going with this. You talked about yourself as a brand, right? So as you were, you were originally a, co- a college slash Olympic hopeful athlete, and that was your brand. That was your identity. Yeah. Did you always think of your, yourself in those terms or did that language come, come later? Because I think influencers tend to think about themselves as brands. They do. So I wonder, was that something intuitive to you or something that was externally, you know, imposed on you? Put on you. Yeah, that it was, um, I didn't, no, I never looked at myself as a brand. That wasn't even a thing, really. Um, it, it was more the realization that um, that it was my, it, was, it wasn't until I lost myself as an athlete that I realized that that was my identity and that mm-hmm. I felt because I, I, you know, you go through a lot, you go through, a, it was almost like a grieving process of a death of a part of yourself and in realizing like that was all there was around me. And, and it was actually my dad, who is not a marketer at all, um, who said that and that forever, for, forever, this will stick in my mind. And I, uh, and I think that anybody can apply this, but when they feel, when they face failure and he said, you know, you're like, like he's a very tough love kind of person. And he said, you know, you're, um, you're, you're acting like you're dead and you're not dead. You, uh, actually this was a gift. It was a gift because you have all of this energy to figure out how to manifest that energy. What is going to be your life? 
How are you going to, in athletics, and I know this is not a motivational episode, <laughs> but in, in athletics, you don't touch any, at the end of the day, you, you, you stand on how many podiums, who cares? You break how many records, who cares? Who does it touch? But figure out how to challenge that can I, energy. Can I just bigger. interrupt just for a second? How old were you when this, when you? 21. 21. Okay. So this was, this was early during very much kind of formative years. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> The, the other thing that I, I thought was really interesting about your talking about how you got into this was your reliance on stories. You know, and I tend to think that, I mean, in some ways, all these things are related. Like a, a brand is a shorthand for a story. Stories are incredibly compelling. And I, I guess in a way, can we think of influencers as kind of a, a story? Yeah, the one I mean, I, I'm gonna almost back up for a second, because the term influencer, like, I almost want to reshape or reframe what when we use that term, please do. We're, we're, um, we're using the term influencer, as, as though uh, it's a it's a certain job title, mm -hmm. like, and we are tend to associate that job title with somebody that's a content creator on social media. And that may be somewhat influential but influence is so contextual and it's an action it's not a, a job title it's an we influence is an outcome and we are all influential in some way so by calling by giving the title of influencer to a content creator i think we're we're blindsiding ourselves to so many as marketers so many opportunities outside of social media um, and we're 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 focusing too much on the channel, the communication channel, the social media, the the, the person, rather rather than the action or the outcome that we want to achieve. And so, um, you know, I think that is where we want to start is by redefining sort of how we're thinking of of influence. And I think your question was back to do influencers tell stories. I think again, it's contextual of like, well, who's the audience? But stories always, people always remember stories more than facts and information. And so, even that's why you know I tell the story of the, the shoebox because you all of the tenants a lot might be lost, but I think the core of what you remember, the important things about the the, the importance that you remember are still there. Because people resonate with story, not with facts or theory. Yeah, I think that's an interesting. I think your approach to the breaking apart the term influencer from influence. I think that's a good one. I think that's actually a very good, a very good academic lesson. I mean, there, so there's a lot of folks in marketing, marketing academics that have studied influence, associated things like persuasion, motivation. And so it's always interesting, and I, and I think this is actually something that happens quite a bit, that, you know, academics will study, study fundamental concepts. Sometimes these concepts go into wider use, and then academics start to study the, the wider use. Um, I, I see that actually a lot in some of the work I do in sports analytics, where you have these statistical models that get applied to baseball, and then suddenly the business schools are interested on Moneyball. So it's... It's kind of a virtuous and interesting cycle. No, it, it is. And it's interesting putting a lot of like, it's almost like anything that hits academia. 
at first it's the wild west and then it, it's like advertising right like when advertising came about and then there was it was the wild west and then there are frameworks and now it's a whole degree um and i think it's the same with you know these any different fields of marketing and 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 in carving out programming for influencer marketing I, again i almost get shy every time i say influencer marketing because i know what comes up but um it's been the same thing in, in trying to develop what are okay, what are the the principles of the the theory built within but then also how do we put frameworks around it but how do we also not lose the fact that if we're too if if we get you know i have this um debate between do we if we go too far by trying to put too many frameworks around and trying to define too many things do we lose the magic of why it works um and that's something that i think has been done too much in corporate already with influencer marketing in terms of measurement on the the subject um and trying to trying to really like force uh metrics around especially things that can be measured digitally like at and anything to do with like direct attribution or attribution it's are you missing the bigger picture like it's it's sometimes things that cannot be measured are much more important and they can only be really known through through the story well let, let, let's go to there because I, I you said a really interesting word and i think this is an incredibly important word in in almost all of marketing, and it's sort of a frustrating thing for marketing analysts and professors to deal with. You said the magic of influence. What is the magic of influence, if you can put that in, in words? And I think that's kind of the key, because it gets at, you know, how does influence actually work? What is the you know, you, you, can, you can study these things, you can crunch the data, you can say, well, the influencer should be a male who's 34 years old and has blonde hair, who posts seven times a day, has a humorous tone, and you can roll that out and it's not going to work, right? Or odds are it's not going to Yeah, work. or we'd all be successful if we all right. knew the template, yeah. So, you know, the formula, maybe you say the formulaic approach can be helpful, but what's the magic? I spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to break this down. And at the end of the day, I think that in order to understand the magic of influence, it's easier to not break down so much what it is, but rather what elements does it have that if you take it them out, it will no longer exist. So there are certain there are certain components. So if, if it's a formula, right? Like X plus Y plus, you know, Z equals influence. Uh, attention. Trust. You have to be known. You, you, that has, but, but being known, they're confusing attention with influence, right? You can be known all day. And that, that's the social media one-on-one is, oh, we got this many impressions and we got this many views and, and all of these kind of metrics. Somebody can know about you all day long. It doesn't mean you have influence over them. And then even if you do in one category, influence doesn't transfer categories. Um, trust, credibility. Those are the thing, those are some of the tenants. Those, those, those elements, credibility, trust, and attention are elements that if you take them out, it you no longer and influence is different than persuasion. I know there's a lot of books out there that talk about being known, persuading, and you know sales books that talk about say you know persuading your audience. Persuasion is different than influence, 
And, um, you know, I, 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 for, um, I think it was Bob, I'm forgetting his name, but he gave a, a really interesting um, analogy of influence being like the way that a river flows, like it's a gravitational pull. You can't force it the other way. So uh, I speak a lot in terms of like story and, and analogy, and I think you'll get this because I think that it's better to explain influence this way uh, and break it down, break down what it is, and you'll immediately get it when I, when I give you this anecdote. Um, rather than me trying to say, okay, it's X, X, and X, and X, like, here's the definition. If I want, let's say I'm trying to move up the social hierarchy ladder in the world, and I want, um, I want to be associated with Elon Musk, who seems to be the, you know, like the, the big, you know, name of the day. Uh, and I want my family to, you know, modern day, have my family somehow married into it. So I've got a brother. So I say to my brother, um, hey, I, I've got a great girl for you to marry. And, and he's like, what, like, what are you talking about? You've got a great girl for me. Like, thank you, I'll pick my own wife. And I say, well, actually, she's Elon Musk's daughter. And then he goes, he, now all of a sudden he's like, well, oh, okay, well, you know, now there's a chance. And then I go to Elon Musk's and I'm like, I've got a great guy for your daughter. To, I don't even know if he has a daughter for your daughter to marry. And he's like, who are you? And like, you know, like, like no shot in hell, right? Like it's the whole cold call. Why would I? Um, and I, I said, well, but this man, he's the, um, he's the senior vice president of NASA. And then he goes, he's like, oh, well, you know, maybe you should meet him. <laughs> And then I go to the uh, the chairman of NASA and I say, I've got the the, the 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 best candidate for your next senior vice president. And he's like, I'm sorry, there's a line like, who are you again? How, like, I, I don't trust you, whatever. And then I say, yes, but he's Elon Musk's son-in-law. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, oh, okay. Well, do you see how that whole connection just worked? You're building, you're using it through partnership, through credibility, through things that people already know or and trust, and you're building credibility, it creates influence. You're not forcing anything on somebody. You're understanding what's going to influence them and presenting it in that way. So to me, that's how we need to like think about influence. How do we build credibility, trust, with, but we, all, we have to be known first. Oh, it's, a, it's a good story and it um it, it called up the idea of uh and I, I think you actually even used this term though I think you're using it in a little different way it's almost a there there needs to be a network of credibility and trust everything needs to be interconnected is that fair yes everything needs to be interconnected and you also have to understand your audience over that desired action so Elon Musk might work and NASA might work but like it might not work if I'm like, oh, and it's the, you know, daughter of like, you know, the L'Oreal. There's so many contextual factors. And I think that's why the magic is lost. Sometimes if we try too hard to be like, okay, somebody is influential with these five. And you'll see that if you go, you go online or a lot of these like Coursera type courses, these five factors to be influ- to be an influencer. I mean, if everyone could do that, we'd all <laughs> we'd all be social media stars. So I think we need to step back, and it's and that's I mean, I, you know this probably you could lecture me on this, but 
the I think that's what is so incredibly fascinating to me about marketing is that there is no to be really great marketer is not to know it all it's to be endlessly curious and endlessly be able to see a situation and take experiences and and kind of like move the puzzle pieces around to see what's going to work and what's not going to work and then redo it because if it was if it was a template that oh it worked for this business now we can just keep replicating then there, we, there wouldn't be a need for 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 marketing well it and what I love about this, Amanda, is you've got a great intuitive feel. And I don't know if you have any background in marketing analytics or the quantitative side of marketing, but I think you've got a great intuitive feel for how these things really need to fit together. Because, you know, like this is this is brought to the the, the podcast series is brought to us by the Marketing Analytics Center, right? So this is this is our bread and butter. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But if you think about these just as a statistician might think about these things it's you know you could go out there and collect this data and you could estimate the model but the model is always going to be incomplete and 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 look you're verbalizing that right it's like so there's you know the things you can learn you got to post thursday morning by 10 a.m or something right but then there's also this kind of this rich set of interconnected variables that you can't really you can't really collect you can't really digitize so i think it's it's a great lesson in how these things have got to fit together. 100 and you asked about the analytics and it's it's so interesting uh, because I so my 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 job Millward Brown was that's what I did was data science um, and marketing analytics. And that was one of the biggest factors in influencing me for lack of a better term um, about the qualitative side and the intangibles was because I remember, especially when you're in the, you know, you're in the very beginning of a company like that, you're a data cruncher. And I, I actually remember thinking it felt unethical and I'm not like one of these like, oh, raw, raw, everything's got, you know, but I, I remember thinking, is this unethical? Because I, and it wasn't that they were unethical at all. It was just that I remember feeling like, we're trying to like fit these like numbers around like human behavior. And this is just this one data set. And like, actually we could kind of, if we wanted, we could kind of spin the data this way too. And, and we're still not covering everything. And like, if we change the decision by even like X, X amount, then how does this even apply? Because humans aren't linear. And sometimes we can't like we, at the time it was like a lot of surf surveys and focus groups and whatnot. And we're not even like the humans sitting in a room. They're not lying. They're answering honestly what they think made them cr- take an action or create a decision. And but yet it's like the perfect storm. Right. And I think um, I think there's a reason Jim Collins Good to Great was such a great book is because it's like marketing. It's a flywheel. It's not. Oh, well, you know, how did you hear about us? Oh, you know, uh, I found a flyer. Well, there was actually 17 different things that probably influenced your behavior. And that survey is not going to capture that. And so it's it's weighting things in, in direct. So that's been a big part of my, and what I'm doing right now, what I'm working on in a really big way um, for a center buildup for the center of influence is, is how do we marry sort of like story and spreadsheet? like 
or you know numbers like, n- numbers and narratives um and how do we do it in a way that has integrity because i i you know as a runner i am about as like numbers oriented and, and and like to quantify things as possible but in certain circumstances like marketing we cannot lose we cannot become so data focused and data driven that we're losing the human component I think we're kindred spirits on this and you know the the analytics are great but at the end of the day they're pro i mean you know there's a balance right some things are purely analytical driven a lot of things it's called decision support for a reason right it's an influencer so let me let me change directions here just for a second who's doing influence really well and you, you know i, I I'm struggling with how to ask the question because I almost want to ask you, who's the best influencer out there? Like, who's the celebrity that has this down? Or I'm also, you know, toying with the, I'll let you sort of choose. Who's the celebrity that's doing this the best versus who's the brand that is figuring out how to navigate this new world uh, the best? Or it doesn't even have to be the best. It could be in the most interesting way. Yeah, those are great questions. And, you know, love him or um, or hate him, uh, and this has nothing to do with political views, Donald Trump is a master in terms of building, building influence for your audience, right? And because that doesn't necessarily mean, I don't think the best um, influencers are, are influential over everyone. And actually, usually they're very, they very narrow their niche in terms of they will have haters and they will because you're not you can't be everything to everybody and if you really want diehard diehard followers you're going to turn some people off um and how he was able to sort of um i mean he it was a revolution and how how a president uses uses his voice uses his resources um oprah winfrey uh again can I ask you a quick question? Can I ask you a quick question on Trump? I find Donald Trump fascinating as well. I, I approach it as slightly a different angle, and so you can just respond to this. I think he tra- I think he transcended being a politician where he had voters to the point where he had fans. And so is that kind of is that a key element to that that once people cross the line from being, let's say having a preference? to being a fan, does that equate to influence? That's interesting, an interesting perspective on it. Because I, and I don't know enough about American politics to really, um, like I actually never took- You're probably better off, right, at this point. Yeah, so I, I'm not really qualified to talk yeah. about any kind of like how how how, how he transcended sort of po- politic, the political route in terms of how other presidents have done it. Um, because I do think that there was a there was a school in him. There there was one side of uh, an audience that liked that he was sort of like liked his act. didn't really care about him, but what actually which was probably a very finite percentage didn't really care about him, but really looked at the policy and how he ran things like a business um, versus the the fans that were just like. Um, he resonated in a way like he's he's he was able to know his audience and 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 speak in a way and say things in a way that wasn't 
it's funny, right? The narcissism that he is, the narcissistic um, characteristic that he has, he knew his audience well enough to knew to know what stories to tell, what statements to say that would hit those emotional chords to create fans like that. Where then you're right, then it didn't be, matter what because a lot of people didn't even seem to know policy one way or the other. Regardless, they were all about the person. <laughs> so. So he was, he is able to do that. He, he was a really fascinating. And I actually, if you go back and read one of his very, very original books in the eighties, it's actually, he didn't mean for it. I'm sure he didn't mean for it to come out that way. But when I read it, I thought it was one of the most influential marketing books I've ever read in terms of creating influence. Oh, I mean, I was a young man at that point, but the art of the deal really did position him as you know that that was the foundation for the Trump brand. Now you also met you also mentioned Oprah Winfrey. I think that's a fundamentally different approach totally. to becoming an influencer, right? And yeah, but and, and people say Oprah, right? And they're like, oh, she, because she's so massively influential in different categories. But we have to remember, it's almost like the same thing. It carries over to uh, a brand as a person, a person as a brand now, but. It carries over to any, and you you probably get these questions asked to you all the time. Like, well, I people don't want to. They want to be like an Oprah. They want to be like all oh, this all empowering brand or person, or they don't want to narrow their focus too much. But if you look, you have to look back at what happened before and before and before, and and nobody starts it's like Hermes or Oprah. We didn't. They didn't start out being you know doing everything, being everything. It's as you build a certain level of trust and credibility in one category and you start to expand it not you naturally start to gain influence in other categories if and if you the more you prove yourself in those categories the more that this flywheel happens and you just kind of take over all kinds of different spaces and oprah's done a great job and just like capitalizing on so many different spaces and interests and it's like everything mm -hmm. she touches people people seem to trust um and it's the same with like a you know a company like Hermes, they didn't start out doing like perfume and scarves and clothing and purses and all of these things. They actually started out in equestrian equipment and they did it really, really well. And they became known for being like the standard. And so then you can sort of start to trickle over. It's like if a client asks, you know, why would I ever start? Like, why do I even need an online presence? I talk about, you know, Plumbing. I'm a plumber, um, and actually, here's a great case study for you, just to close this out, because it's he's. I'm actually having him as a guest speaker in my class this week, and he's he's a plumber, um, and he was, you know, I think over 55, like maybe five years ago ish, and he had never. He's like, you know, I no form no formal education, um, never, you know, done social media, but I needed to increase my clientele, and so. I figured I could probably learn anything. You know, people keep talking about this YouTube thing. I'm going to learn anything on there. So he goes on, he goes on YouTube and he realized, he starts, he actually starts doing, he's like, oh, I learned that people are saying that if I go on YouTube that I can, you know, generate clients. Well, he starts um, a YouTube channel that basically all the questions, most asked questions and issues that people have. And he just shows, he's like, some of them are so easy i feel bad actually going out to their houses and charging them a hundred or two hundred dollars when literally they could they could just like even a, a, a monkey could do it 
And so he started this do-it-yourself YouTube channel on plumbing, and he's now the most famous plumber in the world. And he, and it's only been like two years, two or three years since he started this channel, but he's got like millions. I mean, it's incredible. He's now started a YouTube university, plumbing university to help other plumbers scale their business. But the reason I tie this back to it, you know, how do you create influence in other categories? Because once you get really known and trusted in one category, people automatically, they will tell you what they want. They become more interested in you. Um, so now they're, you know, now he's got this university. I experienced this firsthand when I had my fitness, um, I started a fitness YouTube channel, which was a business school project that became a company. And I started with literally just like with no intention of this ever becoming anything other than trying to prove that I could build an audience on this new thing called YouTube. And I was doing fitness videos, but then they wanted to know everything from my audience was like, not just your diet, not just your, how you sleep, um, fashion, beauty advice, skincare, uh, wedding advice. I mean, relationship coaching, career coach, everything. And I'm like, I, yeah, I was just showing you how to do burpees, but you know, but that's, that, that's kind of that flywheel effect again. So it, it, it translates, but it's, it's almost like, just as I said, influence doesn't transfer categories. It's like, it's almost the opposite effect. Once you become influential in one category and you have these diehard fans, they will start to trust you in other categories. Okay. So I, I think you're doing what, you know, you're doing what a good academic does. You, you see this phenomena and you generalize it and you say, well, this becomes actually much more empowered. You know, we start off with what's the prototypical influencer, like a, a young woman on Instagram with uh, somehow a couple million followers, right? And you're breaking that into what it's really about and how it works. So this might be a little bit of an unfair question, but so as is almost every brand and every organization is now trying to touch, you know, to, to, to figure out how to leverage influencers because their audiences are, are enormous compared to traditional media. Where do you see this, I don't know, this Instagram, YouTube, this kind of organic media, where, where do you see this going? Where do you see these folks? What direction do you see the, the TikTokers and the YouTubers? What do you see in the future? I think it's not going well. It's it's like a communications revolution. Like we are, it's not going anywhere. It was like the invention of the television and the radio, and it was like, well, what's going to happen to these people? Like, what what's going to happen to them next? Right? Um, and I that we 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 will develop our society will then cr create an economy for that, and we have, and it's called the creator economy. And I think we're going to shift from them being just these social media stars into um, content entrepreneurs. And that will actually be a job title. I think it, I'm developing it into a course, actually, a content <laughs> entrepreneur course, which is which because it is that is the creator economy. I don't want to call it the influencer economy, the creator economy. And these are people that make their living creating content online. I think it would be it's very important for these people to understand that 
it's changing and shifting. It's not what it was. Like when I was on YouTube, it was very different than it is now. And, but regardless, if that is going, if you, if it is going to be a business for you, you need to treat it like a business. And so that is what content entrepreneurship is all about is how do you create a business around this? How do you drive to something that you own? If you're, if Instagram or TikTok shuts down tomorrow or changes an algorithm and your business is over, that's not a great business model. So how do you take that audience that you basically have your built-in focus group and how do you drive to something? That's actually how I created and why I created um, a membership subscription model, which at the time was like, you know, so it had actually never been done before. We were the one of the first online fitness subscription models for women. Um, back at back then, but like you need to, I'm not saying go and create a subscription model, but you need to make sure that if, if it is your business that you have ownership over it. Uh, so I think that's really important. So I would say that content entrepreneurship is, is, an, is going to be, it already is, is a new field of study. It's like becoming an advertising executive. I think that makes sense. So it's the, the quality of the content that you're creating, right? That reinforces yeah. how do you create curate content that sells that creates and demand like how are you what is your business model is your business model aligning with brands and co-creating products but there's various different ways that you can go about um creating the business of the content entrepreneur but understanding that that i think that is when you ask what is the future i think that is the future okay so the the other side of that so let's say we've got uh the mike lewis uh, the Mike Lewis Brew Pub. So I'm a I'm a craft brewing company, and I come to you and I say, Amanda, I know this influence marketing thing is big. It's kind of the future. I don't have any idea what to do. I'm a growing brand. You know what do you? And it doesn't have to be a brew pub, right? What what kind of advice do you give to companies that are trying to figure out how they can leverage this new world? I think it all starts with identifying what are your what is your objectives like what are you trying to um, tap into an audience you don't already have are you trying to um, increase you know increase your bottom line is that through I mean what are the different launch a new product line like it, it has to start with the objectives I never I because I, so many that that question gets asked so much is how do we let I think which of the question is is like how do we leverage influencer marketing and that's it's like saying like how do we create a social media strategy okay. like it's not for yeah. figure out what what are you trying to achieve first and then then we'll figure out what makes sense and you know doing a, getting a bunch of content creator stars um to do a bunch of one-off you know promotional product placements that's just social media advertising and these are tactics they're not overall strategies so that's and that's kind of why i i wrote the book in the way that i did and, and which follows my course which is the code i call it the code which is just a framework which is before you even think about how are we going to work with this term influencer or whatever we need to step way back and start with what is what are we actually trying to achieve and and then the influencer strategy comes out in in the question of okay well then in order to achieve that who's my audience 
and what are the influential forces that are that are directly affecting their behavior in that sphere over what over the desired action we're trying to achieve okay so the key is you know it's like anything you know think through what you're actually trying to do and then fit into what these new capabilities are last second to last question and i know we're and if you, you if we're running late short on time just let me know second to last question it, it, NIL, name, image, and likeness, as a college athlete, any quick thoughts? Because that has been something that has blown up blown up American marketing, at least over the next month, where everyone has rushed in. And I have a feeling they've rushed in without a lot of thinking through of what anyone's trying to accomplish. The, uh, the name, image, likeness? Yeah. I, I've thought long, and I've kind of struggled with that, with think, how to think about that, having been a college athlete myself. Uh, and actually working on a documentary for athletes right now. Uh, and I have to, th you know, personally, on a personal level, I think, like, I, I get the whole, like, yeah, they should be able to monetize and whatever, and, and I, I that, but, but then when I think back to, like, being this 18, 19-year-old with so much pressure on you already, like, the, 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 the intensity of that pressure was so high, and the demands, and the travel, and the, the non-stop, like, the, the having to think about how to monetize and, and, then, and then interact with all these brands and partners and build my social media and blah, blah, I just... I think it's a recipe for a disaster. I don't think it, the mental health, and, and actually the documentary I'm working on right now is is about the mental health of, of of athletes, especially athletes that have come up through through the NCAA. And I I have to think that that would have been. I mean, it was all it's already so intense that now to have the pressure not even be about the sport, the pressure to be about how popular you can be, really, which is what it is. <laughs> I think it's toxic. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good take. It's an it's an interesting take that it probably isn't out there enough. That in addition to being a student studying for midterms, an athlete competing, now you've got to run a marketing agency. Exactly. Basically, what you have to do, and so your your focus, like how, where does school even come into that <laughs> equation, right? And I have a lot of athletes in my you know in my what I teach at the undergraduate level at University of Texas. And um, I have a lot of athletes in there, and they're all, of course, all taking the course because they're like, well, yeah, they're like, crap, we have to be doing this. There's not enough time in the day. And I'm like, I feel bad for them because I, you know, yes, it's a great right to have, but almost it's, it's a double edged sword. What, is your th what are your thoughts? And I have to jump as well, but I want to know your. Oh, I'll, I'll go real quick. I think it's the wild west of marketing at this point where it's like it, it wasn't allowed. So suddenly, suddenly something new and everyone rushes in. I, I tend to take uh, the thing I find most interesting about it is that, you know, we've long had this issue where schools were not paying, and especially in the revenue sports athletes, they were putting thousands of people in the stands. Now it's gotten even stranger where schools are trying to get outside companies and organizations to pay their athletes to put crowds in the stands that the schools, you know, achieve revenue from. So it's making college sports even stranger. Uh, so with that, you know, Amanda, I can't thank you enough. Great conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us.